0: So, we are continuing in our series on um, Sermon on the Mount, entitled Upside Down Kingdom. What it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And uh, as we're we're looking today, we're we're looking at two different gates, is what we're going to be looking at. Two different choices that we make that have drastic um, ramifications, depending on what what we choose. And I was thinking about choices, and I was reminded of one of my favorite movies when I was a teenager was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Anyone ever seen that one? It's a good movie. And I, I'm reminded of Harrison Ford or Indy after he, he migrates through these uh, booby traps to get to the Holy Grail. If you remember, it's the, the mythical cup that Christ would supposedly drink from at his last supper. And he is forced to get this grail because it has healing properties in it. And his father has just been shot and he's getting ready to die and he needs this uh, grail to heal him. And so he makes his way, migrates his way successfully through these various booby traps and there's treasure hunters right on his tail. And he comes right in finally to the inner chamber where he sees all of these different cups in front of him. And he doesn't know which one it is. And the treasure hunters come right up behind him. And the, the, the mythical guardian that is there, this crusader that's been given long life, he, he says, you have to choose wisely. And that whatever you choose, which one has dramatic different consequences. So he makes these, he, he, he doesn't know which one to do. And uh, this woman treasure hunter is uh, considered to be this resident expert. And the man who had funded this entire operation, he says, I'm not a historian. I don't know which one it, which one it is. And she says, well, I, let me choose. And so she picks this beautiful golden chalice that's emerald encrusted, And she goes, this is it. And he says, truly, this is the king of kings. And he walks over to this little uh, basin of water and he dips it. And he says, eternal life. And then he, he drinks it. And then instantaneously, he ages uh, all over and he dies turns into dust and he's all gone and then the, the mythical crusader says he chose poorly he chose poorly and so Indy is now wondering which one do I choose and he says well they're all beautiful golden ones and he, he, he sees one small earthenware one he goes that one is the cup of a carpenter and he grabs that one and then he takes it and drinks from it and instantaneously his wounds heal and it's the understanding that choices matter. And that there's all these choices out there, but there's only one that's right. And the Bible describes these choices for us and draws it out. Matter of fact, that's what this passage today is really about, is drawing out these choices for us to show you that in reality, when all is said and done, there are only two choices. I mean, there's a million choices, but there's, they all end in the same place. Death. There's only one choice that can lead us to life. And that is the, the one of God. And it's the one that doesn't look the part. It's the one that's of humility. The one that's of denying self. The one that doesn't, it's not ostentatious. It's, it's, it's very humble. So today we're going to learn about these two choices that God lays before us that we too can make. That we can make the choice of the world, in essence, that leads to destruction, or we lead to the choice, the one choice, that leads to eternal life, and that is following Jesus Christ. So I'd invite you to pray with me as we jump in and dissect this very important passage. But let's ask for God's blessing and our time together. Father, we, we come before you and we plead. We seek your blessing, your insight, knowing that we are nothing in and of ourselves, and, and we are faced with choices everywhere we go in our lives. Lord, I I pray that you direct us, that your word is as a megaphone to our deaf ears. Lord, awaken us to the reality of who you are and what it means to be a follower of you and the choices that we have that are staring us in the face. The choices that lead to destruction or the choice that leads to life eternal with you. We ask your blessing on our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen. I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, uh, if you have them. If not, listen in, but we're going to be really delving delving into this text. Now, I want to start off with verse 13. We're going to come back to verse 12 later on in the message, but I'd like us to start off in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. Now, the word enter is an aorist imperative active. It means to come in, to go in. The aorist tense means that it's undefined. It's not something that happened in the past. It's not something that will happen in the future. It's undefined. The, with it, in the active voice, it means happening again and again and again. We're entering in. We're doing this entering of this narrow gate. It's a, now this gate is a gate of a city or a temple now, when I was in Jerusalem several years ago, uh, the old city of Jerusalem is encapsulated by these old walls. And the only way that you can get into the old city is through a series of different gates. The, you have the dung gate, you have the, the fish gate, and, and they all have names represented by what traveled through there or out of there over time. But these gates could be wide, where a vast swath of people could go through, or they could be very narrow, where only a few people could go through. And Jesus says to us, enter through the narrow gate. And the idea is that one must enter into God's kingdom through this narrow gate. However, he's giving us a description of two possible gates. One is narrow and the wide gate. The wide gate is one that is wide, roomy, broad, and spacious. One leads to destruction, but the narrow gate leads to eternal life. Now, what he's laying out for us are two ways of living. Two ways that we can conduct and live our life. And I don't, I don't think anyone in this room would, after looking at this text, want to go through the wide gate. So I wanna, want us to look at how we can be avoiding the wide gate. That's the first point that I want you to write down. Avoiding the wide gate. Now, I want us to see, first of all, what this gate offers for us. First of all, this gate offers compromising truth compromising truth. See, when we compromise truth, then it's room and spacious. We don't have to to believe anything. We don't have to take a stand for anything. I'm okay. You're okay. That's what people of the world want us to say to them. That Jesus is only a way, not the way. That you can live your life and do all kinds of sin. It's okay. God's fine with that. No, He's not. Not at all. We have to take up His yoke. Follow him, and we cannot compromise truth. And we have to understand when when the Bible lays that out for us that it describes following Jesus not just as praying a prayer and, and inviting Jesus into your heart, and that's it. See, Christianity early on was called the way. Before it was called Christianity, it was called the way. The idea of following something, doing something, taking a path, living one's life on that path. Now, Receiving Christ, accepting Him as your Savior is on that path, but we continue to stay on that path for our life. And when we understand it's not just getting the Jesus insurance policy, as some people do. Like, I pray, that's it, I don't need discipleship. No, discipleship and evangelism go together like two sides of a coin. They're inseparable, and we have done this in America where we have separated and segmented that. And that's what, not what God says. He says, no, it's all together. That's why in the early church, after many people came to know Christ, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Teaching. Meaning that it was, they took it all together. That they were devoting their entire life to what the Word of God said. And when I hear people say, I don't need to read the Bible, I'm like, then you must not really need and understand who Jesus is. Because that is your lifeline. And they say, oh, I read it once. Yeah, so? Tell me something else. It's like saying, oh, I I met my wife once. Let me tell you something. I've been married not that long, as many of you here, but I'm still learning to read her. And sometimes I, I think I can't read. Okay? And, and she's learning to read me, and we're learning one another. And when we look at God's Word, we're learning about who He is. And every time I go back, I get something new. And I'm reading it again and again. And I go through the Bible every year, sometimes more than that. And I'm still on a, And I plan to the... I hope to the end of my life to be taking in and learning more about who God is. Because He is, he is beyond our imagination. To say that we got all of God figured out is like saying that you can get an ocean in this. It's impossible. Completely impossible. We cannot compromise the truth of who God is and what he has laid out in his word. And if we want to be in that wide gate, then we will see that we have to compromise truth. Jesus is the personification of God's kingdom and everything about him and what he has laid out for us, we need to do. Now, we cannot compromise the truth of who God is for cultural acceptance. To do so is to choose the wide gate. Secondly, we see that this wide gate offer also offers tremendous crowds. Tremendous crowds. Tremendous crowds. You know, I, was, I remember hearing uh, Janet Parshall speaking on Moody Radio. And she was laying out and saying, she says, if you want to get a lot of people to literally beat down your door wanting to talk to you, say that Jesus had a wife. Say that he wasn't the son of God. Say that he was all this stuff. People will come from all over. They'll put you on the news. They'll talk about you. It'll be in the headlines. Say Jesus is the son of God and that he Died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again on the third day, lived for 40 days, was seen by hundreds, then ascended into heaven, and he will return to judge the quick and the dead, and you will never, ever receive a call. See, when we compromise truth, when we say things that aren't real, then the crowds come. These tremendous crowds but see, Jesus, I, I mean, Jesus, you've got to love Jesus. He has all these crowds around him, and what does he say? Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part with me. And I'm sure that the, the disciples were going, Oh, Jesus, not the eat the drink the blood, eat the flesh bit again. How are we going to grow a church like this? It says that many walked with him no more. See, he, he lays down. He, it's not about getting the crowd and having everybody chant your name. I mean, when you preach the word of God and you continue to preach it, then God will bless that and people will come honest truth seekers. That's what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said when a young man asked him, how do I get my church to grow? I think I've shared this before. He said, you know what you do? Go out to the street corner, douse yourself with kerosene, and then light yourself on fire and people will come and watch you burn. When we're on fire for God, people will know. But if we go to that broad gate, we'll have tremendous crowd. That's why Jesus says, many go on to that one. There's a lot of crowds. Everybody's there. Everybody's great. Everybody's happy. But that's not the way of Christ. Not to say that we have an abiding joy, but we're not smiling on the way to destruction. Next, if you choose the wide gate, you will find cultural tolerance. Cultural tolerance. Now, I'm not, I'm not talking about tolerance in the classical term. I'm talking about cultural tolerance to the essence of not speaking out against sin. You know, people are happy until you start speaking about sin. They'll let you follow Jesus. Jesus is okay until you call out sin. You know, that, we see that often. You see that in the scriptures too, by the way. John the Baptist was calling people to repentance, but what really got him into hot water is when he said that Herod's marriage was a sham. Or when Paul was standing before another Herod, and he starts reasoning about the kingdom of God and self-control to the man who had basically um, married his brother's wife as well. Calling out sin. We are duty bound to call out sin and say sin for what it is. And this world does not like that. You can't say anything. You can't say that sin is sin. The Bible says that sin is very real and that Jesus Christ came to put away sin. And God's judgment towards sin was seen on the cross. And to say that we can't preach about sin means that we can't preach about the Savior. And to call something sin, which this world despises, means that we are taking the wide gate and not the narrow one. Cultural tolerance. You can say, Jesus is a way, but not the way. As soon as you do that, they don't tolerate you any longer. Now, if you choose the wide path, you will also find temporal, temporal comforts. Look at verse 13. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. Now, it's interesting here that this wording that is there means roomy, spacious. I don't know if you've ever flown on a plane and been in just sitting in coach. It's not a fun place to be, especially, I'm not a huge guy, but I'm a bigger guy, and when I sit down to people, I have a tendency to hang over the other rows. I look like a big, giant ape. That's what I look like. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Appreciate that. Um, but it is, and I remember one time I was flying an international flight, and I was so cramped, and, and, I, and, and then uh, my... Uh, something didn't work in my seat the, they have a, it's a long flight so they had a television there I was my flight attendant I can't get it to work she goes well we're going to move you up so I get to move up and I, I move in I can't remember if it was first class but I, I moved into a place where I was a lot more roomy I put out my legs, it felt so grace roomy and spacious, that's easy see that's what it's talking about here that the gate is wide, it's roomy it's spacious, we get comfortable with that it's good that's it. the easy way we get comfortable I mean sin is fun for a while If it wasn't fun, then people wouldn't do it. Right? Sin is fun for a while. But see, sin has the law of diminished returns attached to it. The more that we continue to sin, the more that we will feel the benefits of that sin. So we have to do more of that sin to help out, get that feeling of pleasure or joy. That's why. Do you think drug addicts start off as drug addicts? No. It develops over time. But the law of diminished returns is just like drinking salt water, which we've talked about several times. The more that you drink it, what happens? The thirstier that you get. And it makes you feel even worse. See, that's what sin does. But you can have it for a little while. It'll have temporal comforts. See, I I love the story of Moses. when, When the Bible's talking about Moses when he was in Pharaoh's palace and he realized that he was an Israelite, and it says that he chose to be sided with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures. I love how that's worded. The fleeting pleasures of sin. Meaning it's fleeting. It won't last. It can endure. Indeed, God will not let it endure. But it will give us temporal comfort, comforts. But where does it end? See, some people might continue to hold on to their sin. I mean, what happens when we hold on to our sin and choose the wide gate? Let's look at verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction, and those who enter it by it are many. Now, where does the wide gate lead? What's it say in the text? Destruction. Destruction. Now, the Bible d- brings that out and draws it out in some pretty graphic terminology. and This is probably the most least popular doctrine in the entirety of Scripture in America. I mean, it's the doctrine of hell. Try to speak about the doctrine of hell, and it's like trying to drink orange juice after you just brush your teeth. That's what people don't like. They don't like to talk about the doctrine of hell. And let me tell you right now in our conversation, postmodern, non authority society where everybody's okay and all good, there is not the voice of God. And let me tell you right now God doesn't ask repentance, He demands it. He demands. I don't know how else to put it that hell hangs in the balance. That hell is a very real place. That if we were gripped by the reality of where our friends and family were go, we would weep. And we don't care. We don't talk. We don't share. God is placing that on our hearts. I mean, eternity is in the balance. It is a place of conscious torment. Where the Bible describes it as weeping and gnashing of teeth. That it's unquenchable fire. And that's only the warm up act. You realize that? That in Revelation chapter 20, that even Hades, where people are go, are thrown into the lake of fire, which is the second death. It's intensified even more. Hell hangs in the balance. And you try to talk to people today, I mean, everybody's going to heaven. Everybody goes to heaven today in our world. Go on Facebook. Oh, Uncle Jim led a pagan life, never followed Jesus, but he's with Aunt Ethel, who totally hated people, who never followed Jesus, or she was a great moral woman, but she didn't have Jesus. You don't have Jesus, you're not going to heaven. I don't care how good you are. Am I a little angry? (laughs) I'm fired up. I am, because I'm tired. I'm so tired. I'm tired of seeing the word of God maligned. And I look back and I see the prophets of God and I see them getting killed and they weren't mincing their words. The, 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 the war is too great to be nice and not speak truth. That eternity does hang in the balance. It's a place of conscious torment. And Jesus spoke more about hell than any other person. And you know what? I don't want to go there, and I don't want anyone else to go there. I'm so glad that I trusted Jesus, and I hope you have too. It's not because of anything I've done. It's because God revealed himself to me, showed me that I was a sinner in need of a Savior. And he told me throughout his word that to those who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And I hope everyone, every single person in this room does that. And I hope we all are choosing God's gate. That's the next point I want you to write in your notes. Choosing God's gate. See, in verse 13, Jesus commands us to enter by the narrow gate. Now, narrow, we don't like the term narrow because it means restrictive. But it's a loving restriction. It's a loving restriction. That's what God's gate is. It's narrow, it is restrictive, but it's loving. It's like when I tell my kids not to play near the road. Is that a restriction? Yes. Why? Because I love them. If I say, like my brother used to tell me, my brother is now 11 years apart, and we had any relationship that brothers had. He was the big brother, I was a little brother. So he was constantly annoyed with me. And he would, he would come home and say, hey, Travis, why don't you go play? here's a kite, there are some power lines. (laughs) Or go play by the railroad tracks, it's okay. (laughs) He would do that all the time. And fortunately, I I knew better (laughs) than that. But he would say that, I mean, he was joking, of course. But is that a loving thing to do, to let our kids go play around there? Of course not. No decent parent, let their small child go play by the railroad tracks or fly a kite near power lines. Why? Because they love them, and they put restrictions on them for a reason. And God has given us restrictions on how to live through His Word, but they find out that they're they're actually freeing. They're freeing. That's the narrow gate. It's narrow. But it's freeing. Freeing. Loving restrictions. Now, we also see that there is definite rejection. If you take this gate, you're going to be rejected by family or friends. Just as Jesus was hated by all people, so too will we be. As it says in the book of John. He was hated by all the world and we can't expect any, anything different. We will be rejected because that's why few find it. The other people don't want to follow that path because it's too restrictive for them. So there'll be a definite rejection But we also remember that this gate offers a persevering remnant. That you're not going to be by yourself. When I think of someone who thought they were by themselves, I think of the prophet Elijah. When the whole world had turned to sin, it seemed. Even the nation of Israel and the prophets had turned from God. And he goes and pleads before God. And and God gives him and tells him what's going to happen next. And then he says something that's pretty profound in 1 Kings 19. He says, I... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Meaning that God's going to leave a remnant. And Paul talks about this, that there will be a Jewish remnant in Romans chapters 9 through 11. Of people that today, who are Jewish in heritage, but believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And that there will always be people that God will bring alongside you because God sets the lonely in families and He has promised that if we give up father or mother or sisters or brothers or, ha- or a house or lands, that He's going to give us even more of that. And He's going to give us brothers and sisters of a spiritual family that He has for us that are going to come and love us and help us. So there will be a persevering remnant. Now, I want us to understand something, though, unequivocally, that this gate, to enter this gate, requires genuine repentance. There's been talk, and I've, I've heard it in different circles, that you don't need to repent to believe. I, I, I must respectfully disagree. Jesus himself said, repent and believe in the book of Mark. And I, I see it this way, and I'm going to illustrate for you using some of my, two of my son's little toys. Okay. This is Percy, okay? Percy is uh, part of the Thomas the train, and this is Thomas, okay? Thomas is going to symbolize us, because Thomas always gets into trouble, just like we do. Now, when we come, try to come to God with our sin, without repentance, what happens? Oh, look, it's pushing it. I know you can't see it, but this, it's pushing it away. It won't stick. No matter how hard we get close, it's going to keep pushing it away. That's what we do when we come to God with our sin, meaning that we're not repentant. We're not broken about it. We're holding on to it. God can't receive us when we're holding on to our rebellion. It's in his nature. He, he, he can't take, take us. I mean, he, he paid the price for our sin, but unless we were willing to acknowledge and confess our sins and repent of them, he's not going to receive us. What we have to do is turn to God, and what happens? Oh, now we're connected. Now we're connected because we find that when we turn, that's what repentance is. It's t- turning. Then we find that God is drawn to us. He was already there. He's been there the entire time. He can even come close to us. And even when he comes close to us like this, when we hold on to our sin, it keeps put, we keep pushing away because of our sin. It keeps us from God. It, repentance is turning from, and when we do, we find out that there's a connection there, that he's ready to receive us. He's ready to take us. That's what repentance is. And don't think that you can have Jesus and be holding on to your sin and living in a state of sin. You can't. I mean, when you say that, like, I'm okay in my situation, you're saying that the cross of Christ meant nothing. It meant nothing. Because when he died on the cross, he died to put away sin, not that you can stay living in it. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to struggle with sin. That doesn't mean not we're going to fall. But it means that when we do, that we have a Savior who's ready to forgive us, as the Scripture says, that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there must be genuine, heartfelt repentance. Repentance. And if we do that, if we stick to God, just as little Thomas is right there, if we turn to Him, we repent and believe, and we follow this path, and we stay on this path, we will see that it leads to a certain place. It leads to everlasting reward. Everlasting reward. Jesus said on, in John 10, 10, the thief comes to, only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Eternal life in His presence. A blessed life. I love what C.S. Lewis said, and I'd like to share this quote with you. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward that the Scripture lays out, and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, what he's saying is, is that we can't even comprehend that the promises that God has for us, and we'd rather continue playing in sinful mud rather than enjoy the vast pleasures that God has laid out for us that are temporal and they're fleeting, the, the sin ones. The ones that God has for us are eternal and abiding eternal and abiding. We are far too easily pleased. Now, if you choose the narrow gate, how then do you act toward those who don't choose or who have gone through the wide gate? See, this is where verse 12 comes in. Let's look at verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, whatever you want, want, wish, do so also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. See, even in this, he desires us to reach out to others, and he wants us to share the truth of who he is. Notice he says that doing to others what you would like them to do to you is a summation of the law and the prophets, meaning pointing to that, what you would, how, how you want to treat them or how you want to be treated is how you should treat other people. In essence, what he is saying for us, that if we're to be choosing wisely, then it requires us practicing the golden rule. It's known as the golden rule. Practicing the golden rule. Now, it's interesting. I was sharing this with my kids. One of my kids says, but nobody does the golden rule. <laughs> I went, that's sad. But we need to. And hopefully we do. And my wife and I tried to explain that we're, we do try. But how do we do this? Well, first of all, it requires us putting on Christ. Putting on Christ. Now, Romans chapter 13, verse 14 says this. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That we put on the clothing of Christ. And when we do so, then we're, we're not allowing, it's like a, in some ways, like a beekeeper suit. You ever seen one of those beekeeper suits before? The bees can't get in? See, that's what it is. It's like the flesh can't get in. When we're, we're putting on the clothing of Christ, it can't, the, the, can't get to us can't hurt us when we're putting on Christ. And then when we put on Christ, then we have a we want to be kind like Christ was. We want to be loving like Christ was. We want to offer grace and compassion as Christ does and has done. Now we also must make sure that we are praying for those captured by the devil. Praying for those captured by the devil or blinded by the devil I would like us to turn together to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, that's on page 996 if you have a pew Bible. But 2 Timothy, it's in the New Testament chapter 2. And this is what we read. The Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul to Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, strength under control is what we've learned that term means. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The scripture also says that the devil has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of Christ. And we need to pray that, they will be gr- that God may perhaps grant them that repentance that leads to life. That's what it means to do the golden world. Rule, I would want someone to pray for me if I was lost. I would want someone to put on Christ and treat me gently and with love, respect. I'd want someone to pray for me and we must make sure that we are not cutting corners. We must make sure that we are preaching the whole counsel of God. Preaching the whole counsel of God. That's in Acts chapter 20. Turn there, please. Acts chapter 20, and that's on page 930, if you have a pew Bible. But in Acts chapter 20, it's a pretty large swath, but it's a very, very important scripture. Uh, this is Paul. He's speaking in Acts chapter 20. And he says in verse 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, why would he say that? Why, why would he say, I am innocent of their blood? Because it's, it's a hearkening back to Ezekiel who was appointed to be a watchman for Israel. And God tells him that you are to be a watchman. A watchman would be up on the wall in the tower looking to see if there was anyone coming. And he says, you are to warn them. What they do about it is their business. But you're to warn them. And if you don't warn them, then I'm going to hold them accountable. I mean, hold you accountable for their blood. Because you didn't tell them what you were supposed to do. Or they were supposed to do. So I'm going to hold you accountable for their blood because you didn't warn them. Now, you warn them, and what they do about it, that's on them. You're innocent of their blood. That's what Paul is saying here. I'm innocent of their blood. I told them the entire counsel of God. And he goes on. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. It's a hard way. It's a sorrowful way. And you see someone continuing on in their sin and refusing to repent. We're to preach the entire counsel of God, calling men and women to sin. I mean, not to sin, excuse me, to salvation and repent from sin. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that we need to make sure that we are presenting basically the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship. Now, when I, when I lay that out, I, I like to, people to know what they're getting into. When you follow Jesus, that it's hard but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's wonderful. It's hard, but it's joyous. There's times of sorrow, yes, but it has a great result. But I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which we've shared before in here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor-theologian during World War II. Uh, He was German. And he... um, wrote a lot, and led what became known as the Confessing Church. What he saw during his time is the church capitulating to the culture. And eventually, even uh, Nazism made its way into the churches where people were even baptizing their babies in the name of the Fuhrer, in the name of Hitler. And they would have swastikas on the wall and at the altars. And these Lutheran, uh, many of them were Lutheran, not all, but uh, these Lutheran German soldiers had no problem Um, killing Jews, and then coming into worship in church on Sunday. And so he led a movement which became known as the Confessing Church, calling people out of that because that was syncretism. That was not the gospel. To follow the one true Christ. And he wrote a great deal about it. And he wrote a book in German. It's called Nachtfolge, which means the cost of discipleship. And he lays it out, and his life exemplifies this fact, because he's saying that a disciple is, in essence, with God in him, is living out the incarnation, and is, is personifying the kingdom of God in the world, God's presence in the world. And he says, when Jesus bids a man, he bids him come and die. And I, I want us to see here for a moment what he means by that, and how he draws that out. And like I said before, his life was an exclamation point, about that, because what happened is, is he was in prison for taking part in a, in a plot to assassinate Hitler. And he was in prison, and three weeks before the Allies were to liberate him, he was stripped naked, taken outside, and hanged. He was 38 years old. He was a young man. And he, uh, but his words now have gone forth and, and gone past different languages and throughout time. And he said this, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Martin Luther's, is what he's referring to there, who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it's the same death every time death in Christ, the death of the old man. Sorry, I can't read that. At his call, he goes, and then he talks about this cheap grace. And I, before I get to this quote, what he's saying there is that there are those who say, I can follow Jesus and not have to die to myself. And they bestow what he labels cheap grace, meaning that it's not the grace of Scripture, but it's a substitute for grace. And this is, he, he says this, this is the grace that people who say they follow Jesus but really don't, who, who go through the motions but their heart's not there. He says, this is what we mean by cheap grace. The grace which amounts to the justification of sin without the justification of the repentant sinner who departs from sin and from whom sin departs. Meaning that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're not going to want to stay in sin. That you cannot continue in sin. Now, it doesn't matter what people say about you and how good they think you are and all the good things that you do and all those nice things. This is about the heart. They're looking at the outward part. God's looking at the heart. And at the end of the day, it's only God's judgment that truly matters. And he says here, Cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. He goes on. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price. To buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of the Christ. For whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of His Son. You were bought at a price. And that, and what has, has cost God much, cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered Him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Basically, what he's saying there is that you have to die so Christ might live in you. That is the incarnation, God among us. And God is showing forth His kingdom in your life by giving the Spirit of God to you so that you might exemplify Christ. And when you choose sin to live and stand, the name of Christ is impugned. That's why the scriptures say, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Meaning that you say you're a Christian and you're living in a state of sin. The Gentiles go, God's not real. And they blaspheme and they turn away from God because of your disobedience. Because of our disobedience. We cannot continue in that state of sin. We must repent of it and embrace him. This is a heavy message. But this is the summation, in essence, of the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that there is a hard way and there is the easy way. Which way are you going to choose? There are only two ways, ultimately. To, say, to make no choice is to choose the destructive way. He says, choose for or against. Which way are you going and what choice will you make? He commands all men everywhere to repent. He's not asking. He's commanding. But if you don't like that, then continue on your wide gate. But know where it leads. If you want to choose the narrow gate, then you must be born again. Born from above. Born of His Spirit. You must repent and believe. Turn away from your sin. Embrace Christ and He will save you. He has promised to do it now and forever. He will give you his spirit. He will forgive. He will put you on the right path. He will give you purpose and the promise of a future together with him. Don't wait, as the scripture says. For he says, In a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and I pray. I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who hasn't yet uh, conf- received you as Lord and Savior, that you transform them. Lord, Lord, if they're continuing in a path of sin, Lord, I pray that you make it known where, that, where, the, where their end result is, that they're on the, the path of destruction. For those that are living in a state of sin and yet still claiming Christ, Lord, I pray that you show by your grace and your mercy your great love to them, that they might repent of their sin, that they might turn away from it and receive you as Lord and Savior of their life. Lord, please give us and weigh upon our hearts the reality of eternity. Help us to to be aware, to be so prayerful for those that are around us. Give us a hunger for the holy things of God. Let your spirit dwell here mightily. Help us not to care what those around us think and say, but help us hold fast to your word and hold forth the truth of your word as ambassadors for Christ, pleading for them to repent and turn unto you. Lord, let us not give in to this comfortable Christianity or this cheap grace, but help us to be radically obedient and on fire for you. May your spirit dwell here, and not just here, but through the churches throughout our community and throughout the world. Lord, may we be joyously participants in what you're doing. And Lord, may we thank you and glorify Your name for what You're doing in our midst. And Lord, if there's someone here that's holding on to their sin, I pray that they might repent and believe, that they might receive You as Lord and Savior. The Scripture, Lord, You have laid it out is so clear that if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that You raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. Lord, let them understand that. Let them receive You. Let them call on You, because we we know within Your Word that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Lord, let their life be changed. Let the promise of your word find root and fertile soil in their heart. That they might see themselves and understand that they are new creatures in Christ with new desires for you. And Lord, may they go forth and boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, please continue to grow us and conform us that we may not be and may not look and be in love with the things of this world, but we might be transformed by the renewing of our mind as we continually hide your word in our heart that we may not sin against you. As we continue, let your words abide in our heart and help us to truly abide in you. And Lord, may we, may we journey on and press on to the upward call of Christ Jesus, our Lord. May we say to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we be enamored by your glory. May we not be content by the mud pies of this world. But may we cling radically and desperately to your promises. Knowing that they will receive their end reward. And they will come to fruition as you have said within your word. Lord, may we be on fire. May your name receive glory. May you use us for your glory and our everlasting joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.